This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. You've got to change the balance. And and what I mean by this is they're looking at the status quo of what, let's talk a situation where people have to evacuate, right? And there's a fire coming and you got to, or, or, hey, there's lava, like, like real lava down the street and you need to leave. Like, can you see the lava? And it's like, oh, it's really slow. I'll just hang out here, right? You know, so it's, but you, what you have to do is you have to change that pain equation for them, I think. And again, this isn't leading through fear. This is helping them understand what the other side of the coin is. Hi, and welcome to Ian Weekly. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. And this week we talked to Mike Figueroa about leadership. And Mike has been, you know, around the leadership industry for a long time, including his time at West Point which we get into a little bit, and he has written a few books on the subject as well, plus all of the teaching that he's doing on uh, lynda.com and, and LinkedIn Learn. The reason why we talk about leadership here is as EMs, we need to be strong leaders, and not only in the industry and in our field, but also we need to be strong leaders in the community. And I just finished this book um, called The Leading Brain, and it's by uh, Federic Fabrosa, We'll be talking to her later on, next couple weeks, um, about her book, and excited about that as well. The reason why I bring this up right now is Mike, in this conversation that we had, and his, his teachings, really brings home the research, the neurological research about leadership, about what it really means to lead, that's in The Leading Brain, that book. Just want you to kind of think about that as you listen to Mike talk about what leadership is, because the principles are sound. This week in Ask Todd, Jeffrey from Carthage, Tennessee, asked about the disaster recovery process and when it starts. Well, Jeffrey, if you're not thinking about recovery right now for your jurisdiction, you are way behind the eight ball. You need to be thinking about recovery in blue sky times. That is today. The plan here that you're going to put together is when you get your stakeholders and figure out what that recovery is going to feel like, where things may go, um, you know, things like that. And I really want to borrow this from General Eisenhower. And I've said this before, but I think in this case here, it really makes sense. It's not the plan that counts. It's the planning process that matters. That's what it's about here. It's about going through the process, looking at what areas are vulnerable. So you're doing a hazard mitigation uh, portion of it. You're looking at your response plans, and then you need to look at your recovery plans. And it's all in that cycle that we talk about all the time in emergency management. It never ends. So again, Jeffrey, think about uh, recovery during blue sky times. And when you really need it, you'll be there. If you want to see some sample plans, go to forums.emweekly.com and I click on the planning section and there are a few plans that people have put in that area. So looking forward to seeing you over there, Jeffrey. I do appreciate the question. Now let's talk to Mike. Hi and welcome to Ian Weekly and this is your host Todd DeVoe speaking and today I have uh, Mike Pigliolo with us 
and he has done a lot of courses, about 25 of them, on the LinkedIn Learn or Lynda.com, which I've actually used both of them. Uh, they're basically the same thing, and it's a, a really, if you guys have never used Lynda or LinkedIn Learn, uh, I really recommend a lot of good courses on there. But uh, we're going to here to talk about Mike and about leadership. So, Mike, welcome to Ian Weekly. Great. Thanks very much for having me. So, Mike, how did you get involved in the concepts of leadership and, and the stuff that you're doing with your teaching? Yeah, so it goes <clears throat> way back to, uh, I guess, my college days. I went to West Point, and if you want to talk about learning leadership anywhere, that's, that's a pretty darn good place to start. And after the academy, I was a tank platoon leader for a few years, also taught ROTC uh, at Duke University for a little while. So that was really the people leadership piece. Then after the Army, I went into consulting with McKinsey and Company, and that really helped me learn how to lead the thinking, how to lead clients, how to make recommendations. And then ever since my consulting days, I've really applied that stuff uh, in a couple of corporate roles. And eventually I said, you know what, I really enjoy teaching this stuff, and it's kind of cool when you see people's light bulbs go off over their heads. And I've always been entrepreneurial, so it sort of all came together, and I launched my firm back in 2004, and I've been doing it full-time since 2008. So this show, it really talks to the emergency manager. Um, and Craig Fugate, who was the administrator, was the FEMA administrator under Obama administration, um, he talks about the idea of the emergency manager as being the football coach. And, uh, you know, during all the practice and everything that we're doing, we're putting everybody through the paces, but on game day, you kind of step back, you kind of maybe throw in some plays, but the players are on the field. And so realistically, an emergency manager, no matter what level they're at, has to pick up those leadership roles. And so we have people that are coming into this field. How would they, how can they hone their leadership skills and even talking to people, and you, like you would know this from the military, I had the same thing, of, of leading up the chain of command and down the chain of command. How, how can somebody get involved with that? Yeah, I think one of the first things is committing to learning. I, I like to say that I learn something new every day. I don't care what it is. Sometimes it's really deep and insightful stuff. Sometimes it's as stupid as, gee, how does the water tower up the street for me work? And I go look it up. But you, you've got, to, if you want to grow as a leader, you, you've got to make that commitment to learning. Also understand that the learning opportunities are around you everywhere. You can learn just as much from that senior executive as you can from that brand new kid who just joined your unit. Um, you, you just got to be looking for it, right? You, you can learn when you go to movies. When, when I go see movies, I don't know if you ever hit my blog, but uh, you can always tell when I've seen a big blockbuster because there's a post on it the next week. And it's about the leadership lessons from that movie, right? Like from the Avengers or Black Panther or whatever. So, so I think the folks who really want to be good leaders are always going to be absorbing everything around them. They're going to pick up different situations uh, where people react differently to them and, and just file it away. And eventually it just becomes seamless, right? There's this database of situations you've been in and resolutions to those situations that eventually they just start clicking and you don't know how the combinations were made. It's just, I pulled this one resolution because I saw this situation happening and it worked. So I, I think that's one of the biggest things that differenti differentiates really great leaders is they're always taking in new techniques. Um, in terms of, you know, leading up the chain of command and managing up, 
I, I think for me, that's mostly about communications and expectations. The expectations piece needs to be set in both directions. So the leader above needs to say, here's the information I need. Here's the frequency I need it for this kind of stuff. Update me every week for this kind of stuff managed by exception. Um, so they got to set those expectations. And then the individual doing the leading up has to um, calibrate those expectations, right? Because sometimes a boss will ask us, oh, I want an update every hour. It's like, really? Every hour? How about, you know, once a day, maybe? Um, so you got to calibrate the expectations, but then you've got to live up to them in terms of the communication you do. I'd also advise folks not to wait for that expectation to get set for you. Don't just sit there and say, well, I'll update the boss when he or she tells me they need something. Go to them proactively and say, I've got these 10 things I'm working on. I think you need to really know about nine of them. Three of them you should know about every day. Three of them you should know once a week and three of them I should update you by exception. Are you okay with that? Because if you proactively articulate what that communication plan is going to be, one, you'll be more satisfied with it because it won't be something stupid like I want to update every hour. Um, but two, you're, you're, se you're setting a commitment that's going to be easier for you to meet since it's one that makes sense relative to how frequently you need to be communicating. Hmm. Yeah, I tell my students um, <clears throat> when we talk about dealing with elected officials um, that you want to make sure that elected official doesn't look foolish when they go to the press briefing. And that's what your job is to deal with them is to make sure they don't look foolish when they go in front of the press briefing. Yeah, surprises are never good, right? Right. So in the course that I took that you, that you did, one of them, um, it was to talk about your maxims. Can you talk a little bit about developing your maxims and what exactly that is? Yeah, so that's part of a course on developing your personal leadership philosophy. A lot of times I'll hear folks who have a leadership philosophy and it's all these buzzwords like, I'm going to synergistically leverage the human capital assets. It's like, dude, whatever. Um, you know, leadership philosophy should articulate who you are, what you stand for, what you believe. And do so in a manner that's real, that people get to know you, that they understand the experiences and beliefs that make you tick. The reason for articulating one is it helps you build trust with the members of your team. They understand how you're going to think about a given situation and how you're going to react in it. Therefore, you become more productive. Therefore, it's easier for them to trust you because they know how you're going to react and respond to situations. What a maxim is is a principle or rule of conduct. And for me, the way I've built that method is, I have people think about four aspects of leadership, leading yourself, where are you going, what do you stand for, what are your ethics, leading the thinking, how are you gonna make decisions, how are you gonna innovate, how are you going to push the thinking, set a vision for the organization, leading your people, duh, but how are you gonna interact with them as individuals, and then leading a balanced life, because if you're burned out, you're worthless. So what I encourage people to do is examine all four of those areas of leadership, all four of those aspects of leadership, and articulate maxims. And a maxim is a trigger for you that reminds you of a behavior that you want to live up to. So, for example, one of my maxims is, let, let's go with the one of uh, managing up. One of my maxims is kick up, kiss down. And that means nothing probably to anybody who's listening to this, but I had a conversation with a very senior executive at one point and I witnessed him screaming at somebody on the phone. And he was like the most chill guy you'd ever met. And after he got off the phone, he slams it down. I said, who are you talking to? And he tells me the executive's name. And this guy was like four levels above him. I'm like, oh my God, what are you doing? 
He said, kick up, kiss down. That's my job. I said, I don't understand. He's like, he just made a dumb decision. He needs to know how dumb it is because it's going to affect you and your team and it needs to be fixed. And my job as your leader is to kick up when they screw up and protect you folks and then kiss down when you folks do a great job. I need to let you know. So in that moment, I said, that's the kind of leader I want to be. I'm going to adopt that as my principle or rule of conduct for how I'm going to manage up. And I'll always remember that situation. I'll always remember where I was. And what that maxim reminds me to do is when I have that moment where one of my boss people is doing something stupid and my bias says, well, I'm not really going to say anything. I'm going to kind of let this one slide. That maxim says, hang on a minute, dude. We kick up. You need to kick up right now. This is the opportunity to do that. So what your maxims become is that collection of triggers, that collection of memories that exemplify the way you lead and serve as essentially a leadership conscience for you that you can pull out during those difficult situations to guide your behavior. So I have, you know, to people listening to this podcast and I have my students uh, college college students that are learning to be leaders. Obviously, I have those that are already established in in the industry, and I like to talk to my college students a lot. I tell them to start leading today, and what I mean by that is that just because you're a college student coming in, that there are things that you learn that you can do to start leading. How can we encourage those kids to really pick up that leadership mantle before they move into even their first job? I I guess I go back to my West Point experience, and I'm not encouraging you to haze your students like I was hazed, but you, you get thrown into those situations. Um, and, and what I think what's important is they have to understand the impact of leadership. If they can see that they can have a positive impact on somebody's life, either in terms of helping them grow, helping them get through a challenge, helping them be safer, helping save their lives, um, if, if they can see the value in that leadership and their ability to contribute to it, I think that's one element of it. it so you got to show them, here's why leadership is valuable. I think the second piece is to really demystify it. They look and they go, oh, well, my leaders are all like these 40-year-old you know, men and women, and they've all done all these great things. It's, it's like, yeah, but you can also lead in your group homework assignment. And here's how you can lead. And you, if you have somebody who's having trouble and you have somebody else who's great at it, how can you facilitate that conversation to help the group do better? By breaking it down into those smaller microcosms, right? Leadership is the same. It's just a question of scale. <clears throat> so helping them understand the benefits of them stepping into that leadership role. Hey, your team will be more successful. You get the work done more quickly, uh, as well as you can apply it in a really small situation. It's an hour long team meeting. You can be a leader in that situation. It doesn't have to be you know, storming the beaches of Normandy uh, kind of scale for it to be considered a leader. I think if you can do those two things, that then takes, um, takes down the, the mystery behind it and, and the intimidation factor of it. Um, and then I think the third thing you got to do is when they screw up, because they will, there needs to be the conversation, the after action review of, hey, you tried this. That was great. That was one technique. Here's a different technique. Here's how you can do it different the next time. And you got to fly air cover for them. If you scream at them after that screw up, they're never going to try it again. They'll be like, yeah, I'll wait till I'm 40 and, you know, then I can go do that stuff. <laughs> right. Like you, I learned my, uh, a lot of my leadership uh, style and ideals from the military. 
uh, I was, you know, I was enlisted, but still those, those skills that you learn. And especially when you, I was a petty officer when I got out and especially being able to lead uh, guys that are below you and same thing and uh, protecting them. I think that's really important. But one of the things that I, I learned is always to give the guys below you the, uh, the, the ability to lead certain things, whatever that small thing would be. And I encourage my emergency managers that are out there that have teams to be able to give projects to the new kids coming up because they are replacing us, right, at the end of the day. We yep. do have to get them to where they're going to be able to fill fill our shoes, and that's important. So uh, kind of on that on scale, leading a dynamic organization with lots of moving parts, um, and an especially one that gets put into a crisis situation such as, say, in California, one of the large-scale fires that, that we're managing uh, from up here. Um, how do you see leadership moving from your day-to-day up to the crisis? So, so are you talking about the different practices or, or getting people to grow into those roles? I think both, actually. Yeah. So the, the day-to-day stuff is an easy place to get lazy and not do it well. No, everybody's going to lead well in a crisis because we respond, the adrenaline pit, uh, kicks in, we see the stakes, we, we get focused, and we understand the importance. And it's, it's I'd argue, easier to lead in a crisis situation. It's, it's easier to lead the, in the field than it is to lead in garrison, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, I think back to my platoon leader days, my soldiers were awesome in the field. I love taking those guys to the field because they were focused, they were on it, they were doing the right things, they understood the mission and how they contributed. When I got them back to garrison, oh my gosh, what a nightmare, right? I mean, just doing stupid stuff in the motor pool, getting drunk, you know, and you're just like, why are you guys so good out there and you're so bad here? And, and then I take a step back from it and it's like, um, I kind of own that because I'm their platoon leader and I'm maybe looking at garrison as not that critical of a place to lead and yeah, whatever, we have formation, okay, so you're a little bit late the stakes aren't as high as when you're in the field and you're running missions. Um, so I'd argue those, those day-to-day times are harder to lead because the stakes aren't as high, the stress isn't as high, and we tend to diminish the value of those. The, the rub with that is the habits that you establish in garrison, you know, back in the barracks or during the day-to-day are the ones that are going to rub off when you're out in the field. Mm-hmm. If you're not paying that attention to detail when you're in garrison and you're letting somebody get away with frayed boot laces or not shining their boots, when it comes to the field, that little bit of slack can show up in, well, they didn't clean the machine gun as effectively as they should have. And they, and they sort of, you know, just sort of mailed it in. Um, you know, I think back to my West Point experience and you'd walk out in the hallway and you'd have a uniform inspection and they'd be like, Hey, your name tag isn't straight. And you have a little string, a thread coming off of your pocket. And you'd be like, seriously? And they'd be like, yeah, seriously, fix it now. And, and it was that really rigorous attention to detail that, that you learned and also those leaders who were correcting you and, and leading you learn because when you go out on a tank and you're bore sighting a tank and you put in, you're off by like 0.01 on the digits you put in, guess what? There's a huge difference in where that round is going to land. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting challenge um, the, the crisis stuff isn't what's hard, right? When, when you really step back and think about it, the, the stuff that's hard is the stuff that seems like it doesn't matter, but arguably that matters more than anything else. 
Can you share that, the story of the Seven Up? Yeah. Um, so when I was a platoon leader, I had a guy in my platoon who was a problem child. He would show up late. He would show up drunk. He would show up late and drunk. The rest of that story, when we return from our break. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple to use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. The modern emergency manager wears lots of hats. So how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It's just a matter of time. And how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. Pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises are what they offer. Spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations and more. Exercises come from the archives of the Blue Cell. Get a jump start on your exercise program today and visit TTX Vault at www.ttxvault.com. Welcome back from that quick break and thank you so much for listening to the sponsors because without them we couldn't do what we're doing here at Ian Weekly and hit them up, check them out, say hi, tell them that uh, we sent you. Now for the rest of the story. Can you share the story of the 7-Up? Yeah. Um... So when I was a uh, platoon leader, I had a guy in my platoon who was a problem child. He would show up late. He would show up drunk. He would show up late and drunk. Um, you know, you just had to micromanage him all the time. We were out in the field one time and we were playing cards. We were at the gunnery range and it was kind of hot. And I gave my driver five bucks. I said, hey, go down to the snack tent, get some sodas for the guys. And I gave him a list of, you know, what sodas to get and who to get them for. So my driver came back and he starts handing out the sodas and he gives Problem Child the 7-Up. And Problem Child looks at him and he says, you know I drink 7-Up? And he said, no, Lieutenant Figliolo said to get it for you. And Problem Child looks at me and says, sir, you know I drink 7-Up? I said, yeah, I know a lot of things about you. And his only reaction was, huh. That's it. It was just like, huh. And the next day, it was weird. It was like invasion of the body snatchers. He showed up. He was on time. He looked good. He did all his job all day, you know, met the standards. And at the end of the workday, I pulled him aside. I was like, you know, hey, problem child. I didn't call him problem child, but I was like, hey, problem child. Um, good job today. He said, thanks, sir. I said, we both understand that this is not normal, right? And he's like, yeah. I said, what is going on with you? What's, you know, why am I seeing this change? He said, well, remember when we were playing cards yesterday and you got me that 7-Up? And I was like, yeah, I, I guess. <clears throat> he said, well, when you did that, you kind of showed that you cared about me as a person. And it's been a long time that anybody's really shown that they care about me as an individual. So I figure if you care about me, I should probably care about the work I do for you. And, and that's one of my maxims, right, is he drinks 7-Up or just even the image of a bottle of 7-Up. And it's that reminder to know your people because it has – just these far-reaching implications for how they feel when they're under your care. And, and I'm not talking paternalistically here, right? But, but I have a responsibility for these soldiers, and, and they know that. And it's a big difference when somebody actually cares about who you are versus saying, oh, that's my driver, that's my loader, that's my gunner, and, and they feel uh, replaceable in that situation. So 
piling that story into the concepts of volunteer management. And I think it's important to, to understand the people that are volunteering for you because they're doing stuff stuff for free. What little things can you can you give people who are managing volunteers? Those little tidbits that you can get them to be performing because you, you're obviously not doing it with pay. You know they don't yep. care about that. What what can we do as emergency managers to really uh, encourage and and um, spirit you know encourage and, and lift the spirit of our volunteers? I think if you don't understand why your team member is volunteering, that's a huge miss. You need this. There is something there. This person is willingly giving their time, energy, and effort that could be spent with families, friends, could be spent earning more money. Um, they're putting themselves in danger a lot of times, right, voluntarily. And if you don't understand why they're doing that, what the thought process is behind it, that's a huge miss. You're probably going to find, and, and I've not led folks in emergency services, I've not led volunteers, but I would venture to guess if you sat down with your team members, you will find, oh, I had a friend or a family member who was killed in an accident or lost their home in a fire or, you know, they, they, they've been touched in some way by an emergency in the past. It could be, hey, you know, my grandfather was a volunteer fireman and I always looked up to him. My, you know, my mom was a volunteer at, you know, the local hospital. And I remember growing up watching her save people's lives. Um, you know, if, if you don't understand the motivation for why they're there, it's going to be really hard to unlock that motivation. Um, you may even do things that are counter counterproductive, right? I mean, imagine you're in there in, in the bay at the, at the truck and you start saying, oh, yeah, these volunteer nurses, man, it's so easy. And it's like, yeah, great. My mom, thanks. Right. And you want to demotivate me. Right. So, so I think that's first and foremost to just sit down and have that conversation. I, and you can do it individually, one-on-one, -on -one, take them out for lunch, take them out for coffee or whatever, and just say, why do you do this? Why, why are you here? Um, you know, I am trying to set a good example for my kids. Okay. Got it. Hey, it may be religiously based. I believe in service to my community. Okay. Got it. Right. You understand that motivation first and foremost. I, I think the, Second thing with volunteers is, you know, it's, it's really easy. We will, I think, very easily slip into the mindset of, oh, they work here. And w along with that word work comes a notion of compensation. So they do something really good. And we just say, well, yeah, that's what we pay them to do. Well, dude, you're not paying them. You're not paying them. And, and you need to acknowledge and say, you know, hey, that was a great job the other day. You know, I know the bay was dirty and the equipment was dirty. And I really appreciate you spending that extra hour out there with the hose and the mop and just cleaning that stuff up. And I know that sucked. And, um, you know, the other guys should have done a better job keeping up the equipment, but I recognize you did that. And that makes a big difference. Those, those little moments, those little moments where you see the person, and I don't mean just like observe them. I mean, like really see them as a person and see them giving more those are the touch points that are going to be like that seven off moment where that person goes, holy cow, they see me and my work matters and somebody appreciates it. Uh, and I, I think it's even more imperative with an all volunteer force than it is. You know, you should do that if you're paying people too, don't get me wrong, but it, it really becomes imperative when, you know, their, their pay is in another form. One of the things as emergency managers, um, we go out to the public and we talk to them about being prepared for disasters, 
um, you know, we, you know, public speaking type things. And, you know, a lot of times the, the, the public, sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. Um, and one of the challenges I have is how do you lead people that don't want to be led? Yeah. Fear. No, I'm kidding. Um, although fear, fear can be a tactic. Um, you know, I, I, I think again, it goes back to, you've got to, um, you've got to change the balance. And, and what I mean by this is they're looking at the status quo of what, let, let's talk a situation where people have to evacuate, right? And there's a fire coming and you got to, or, or, Hey, there's lava, like, like real lava down the street and you need to leave. Like, can you see the lava? And it's like, Oh, it's really slow. I'll just hang out here. Right. You know, so it's, but you, what you have to do is you have to change that pain equation for them, I think. Um, and again, this isn't leading through fear. This is helping them understand what the other side of the coin is. So the, the example I'll use is when I was a corporate guy, I had our IT guy who was responsible for managing our phone vendors. And our phone vendors were terrible and they were giving us terrible service at all of our branches and it was like messing up our operations. And I used to go to the IT guy and I'd be like, hey, you need to get on these phone vendors. Like they're screwing up. It's causing impacts. I'm not happy. Go fix it. And he would say, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he'll come back to me a couple days later. He's like, yeah, I talked to them and it's this and that. And give me all these excuses. And it went on for like a few weeks. And finally, I was just so mad about it. I said, okay, here's how this is going to go you're going to come to my office every hour and report to me about every single branch and every single status of those branches and the phone systems. And I want you to transcribe all of your conversations that you have with these phone vendors because I want a record of it. And I started holding him to it. And if he didn't show up in my office, there was a phone call. And there were a couple of times I went down to his place. I was like, you need to update me now. And what I was doing was I was changing the pain equation because initially it was more painful for him to get the vendors to do their job than it was to blow off Mike, right? So there was so much more pain over here with the vendors. It's like, well, I'll blow off Mike. There's no consequences. All I did was make it a lot more painful to deal with me. And he said, well, it's more painful to deal with Mike than to go kick the vendor in the butt. So I'm going to go kick the vendor in the butt. So where you can then take that with the public where people don't want to be led, it can't be that pointed. Obviously you don't have that type of positional authority to be able to demand those things, but well, I don't want to move. I don't want to evacuate. I'm worried about my house. I'm worried about, you know, my, my goods and my computer and stuff like that. And you got to point out to them, find that, find those compelling ways to show them, Hey, look, if you don't evacuate, here's what happens. And maybe it's showing them news stories of, people who are getting airlifted out or, or who are having their houses burned down and they're in them, or, you know, they're losing their pets and their animals because they didn't evacuate kind of stuff. Right. And, and it's not a pretty picture that you're going to show them. Right. And, and there is a little bit of fear that goes into it, but you have to show them the cost. You have to show them the consequences at least to get them to open their eyes in that moment and say, Whoa, this is like really serious. Lava does eat cars. Maybe I should listen to this person. A little bit of change in the pace here. Are leaders born or are they made? That's a false question. Okay. Because I, I, I believe it's some of both. I think anybody can lead. I, I think everybody has the innate ability in them. 
it's a question that goes back to the first conversation we had about what differentiates a leader is somebody wanting to then lead and wanting to learn. And then if they do want to learn, they can absolutely be given the tools to be a more effective and more efficient leader along the way. But if, if somebody demonstrates that willingness to lead and that willingness to learn, they can lead. I, I, I don't believe that you know, there's some of us who just, oh, I don't have that gene. It's not one of my chromosomes and therefore I can, no, people will follow you. You just have to, you just have to want it. Now there are people who don't want that responsibility. They don't want to do that work and that's fine. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it's a universal, I, I think it's a false dichotomy to say, you know, are, are they born or bred? It's the answer is both. And, and it's, you know, I'd, I'd encourage a bit of a a bit of a nuanced look at it in terms of the desire to lead. And if you have the desire, can you learn? Absolutely. All right. I'm going to ask one more, one of the, I'm going to ask one more of those, uh, those questions. What is the difference between a leader and a manager? This is the bit of debate we've been having. You manage things and you lead people. And that is Admiral Grace Murray Hopper. Uh, and it was just a wonderful quote on her part. Management is about budgets, it's about tasks, it's about inventory, equipment, <clears throat> um, it's about projects and processes, it's, it's about all the inanimate stuff. And, and don't get me wrong, it all has to be done. Everything needs to be ticked and tied and measured and counted, um, but that's management. The leadership is inspiring people to do things, getting people, figuring out what that fire in the belly is. Hey, my mom was a volunteer nurse and I watch her save people's lives and I want to save people's lives like my mom, um, you know, and, and then understanding that, finding that motivation and then figuring out ways to unlock it. And, you know, maybe it's uh, Joe doesn't like cleaning his equipment afterwards, but, you know, his mom was a volunteer nurse and he really looks up to her. And, and maybe you just have a conversation with Joe and say, yeah, you know, Joe, cleaning equipment kind of does suck and I know you hate it, um, you know. I wonder, I wonder how your mom dealt with those issues when she was like in the ER and OR staff. And I'd be interested to hear, you know, would you mind talking to your mom about like how they handled that type of stuff? And Joe's like, oh yeah, sure. I'm sure she never dealt with that. And then he goes home and mom tells him like, hey, idiot, that's a big part of your job. Here's why you need to do it. Here's why it's important. And Joe comes back the next day. He's like, I want to go clean the equipment, right? <laughs> and And it's, you know, it's, but, but you got to understand your people. And, that, and that's what leadership's about is understanding where's, where's that, that little on button, the on switch that gets them to go, oh, this is important. And, and I see why, and I'm passionate about it. So for me, that's the difference between management and leadership. And, the, and they obviously both play together. And if you want to be a good leader, you got to be, a, you got to be a great manager. Um, but just because you're a great manager, it doesn't mean you can be a great leader, right? Right. So kind of kind of back and, and sort of, I don't know we're a little bit in front of the story, the seven up story, but how do you lead that employee who, um, this is an employee now, not a volunteer or a person. How do you lead that employee who you know has potential of being great, but just isn't putting that effort in? I, I think you've got to get to the root of, why am I not getting the effort I expect? If we know this individual can be great, something changed. Something changed somewhere. And why am I not getting their best efforts? I think a lot of times we assume, well, this is why I'm not getting the best effort. You got to stop and you got to ask. You got to sit down with them and say, hey, you used to perform at a level of 99. 
Now I'm seeing you perform at a level of 60. Let's acknowledge, do you understand you're performing at a 60? And they may say, no, I'm, I think I'm doing great. It's like, okay, then we got to give some feedback and let them know, no, you're at a 60. When they acknowledge, yeah, I'm at a 60, the next question is critical. Why? What, what's happened that you were performing there and now you're performing here? And when you understand that why, then you can actually take differential action. The why may be, oh, well, you changed my job description and now I'm working on a programming language that I don't know and I keep screwing it up. I knew this one programming language and that's why I was doing it at 100. Now I'm doing a task I don't know. It's like, oh, okay, I can train for that. It may be, yeah, um, I just had a family member pass away. It's like, oh, dude, like, let me take some work off your plate and I understand and, you know, demonstrate the empathy and give them time to recover from that and, and figure out how to change their work responsibilities so they can get back. It may be, yeah, you know, Bill down the hall is taking credit for all my work, so why should I care? It's like, okay, there's an issue and now I, I have some interpersonal conflict I got to resolve. You've got to understand that why. I, I think too many times we just assume that, well, let's, you know, let's, uh, let's ride them a little bit harder and, and they'll pick up the pace. And, you know, if you don't understand the why, you're not going to get there. For me, I, I had a point when I was a consultant, I was doing great work and it, was show, it showed up in my review. I was rated as distinctive, which is the top rating. And I went on another project and after a couple months on the project, my work, I was mailing it in. I was like, yeah, don't care. Not really a big deal. Doesn't matter to me. And everybody was like, what is going on with this guy? Well, what was going on was they gave me a new manager and my new manager <clears throat> would like denigrate everybody's work on the team. And he'd say things like, well, if your slides don't make it in the main presentation, then you're not doing worthwhile work. And he'd say that right after we did a deck where one of the 20 slides I did was in the main presentation. And it's just like, he's just beating me up and, you know, telling me I'm worthless. It's like, fine, if I'm worthless, then I'm going to give you worthless work. When, when the engagement ended, I got the rating I should have gotten. Right. And, and I own a big part of that performance. I could have, behaved differently and reacted differently. I didn't. Uh, some of it was on him. Some was on me. But afterward, when I got my new manager, she and I sat down and she said, okay, what's up with you? Because I know I've seen you perform before. And right now I'm not seeing the same mic. What's going on? And I told her and she's like, okay, what are we going to do differently? I said, well, she said, will you commit to giving me the level of work that you did? Yes, I will. She said, what do I need to give you? I was like, well, I'd like some acknowledgement. I'd like some visibility. I'd like a work stream that's meaningful that I'm not going to be shoved in a closet doing Excel kind of stuff. And she said, okay, I can do that. She said, I'll keep up my end. You keep up your end. And all of a sudden, my performance is back where it was. But she asked that important question of why. So, so again, I, I just come back to, you know, get grounded on the facts of do we see that you've gone from 100 to a 60? And once that individual understands the performance gap, understand the why and lead uh, accordingly. So as a leader, you're responsible for your team's performance. Is that accurate, Stephen? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that being said, are you being, are you being judged on your leadership skills if your team is not performing? I think so. Absolutely. Right. So, okay. So how do you, as a, as a new leader or say someone who's been a leader, but now struggling, how do you increase your performance as a leader? I, I think, um, 
you know, obviously got to have your own ship in order and make sure that the work you're doing, whatever it may be, whether it's, you know, the budget, the progress reviews, work scheduling, whatever else, make sure you're doing that right. And then from there, it's, all right, why is my team underperforming? Is it a collective effort? Is it that we don't have the resources to do the work we're being asked to do? Is it we don't have clarity on what the mission is? Or is it, no, there's clarity and we got the resources and we're just screwing it up. Um, and if it's, we're screwing it up, it's that why question again, why it's, well, Mike is like mailing it in and Mike's work stream is the most important one. And without his work, you know, all the rest of us, all our work suffers. So it's, it's Mike's fault and, you know, understand that or understand, well, yeah, we all want to do great work, but we've never been trained on like translating, uh, emergency medical guides into Russian. So can we get a little help here? You know, and, and they may not have the skills. So it's got to come back to that why. Um, I think it's too easy to just keep pushing the accelerator and thinking you're going to get different results and, and telling your people, we're not doing well enough. We're not doing well enough. Work harder, work harder. And if you don't get to that root cause of what's driving it, you're never going to fix it. What resources do you give new leaders? Um so it's a bit of a loaded question slash fox in the hen house kind of kind of comment because you know I do this stuff, <laughs> right? Um, I think uh, two of the resources that that I encourage folks to uh, get a hold of one is one piece of paper, uh, the for my first book, and that's how to articulate your personal leadership philosophy. The second one is my second book, Lead Inside the Box, and it goes to a lot of what you're bringing up, which is diagnosing performance issues and then changing how you're interacting with that individual to get them to change their performance. Those are two great resources. I'm not pushing product right here. I make like 42 cents a copy, right? It, it's that I wouldn't have written the books if I didn't believe in the methods in them and, and their ability to help new leaders. Um, you know, the, the lynda.com courses as well. I've, I've put a lot of video content out there around leading effectively, um, setting team and employee goals, um, you know, creating your leadership philosophy. So those are there as a resource too. Um, I do, I do like sending folks to our blog. Uh, we've got well over a thousand articles on there and the blog is free. Um, we've got well over a thousand articles on there. I've written a bunch, but I've had some amazing guest authors on there who provide perspectives on every leadership topic and, and a ton of management topics. Uh, and it's all, pretty accessible. You get on there and search it and you can say, I have a low performer, just type in low performer and you're going to get like 10 articles. Um, so those are, those are some really good resources as well. And, and just for everybody, if, if you're driving and you don't have a pencil down or whatever, um, we're going to go ahead and put the links to Mike's uh, books and also the blog um, as well down in the show notes. So everything that we're talking about, you can, you can find pretty quick. So Mike, we're, we are coming to close to the, to the end of the conversation here and, I know you talked about your book, but what what other books or, or book would you recommend to somebody who is um, is new into this space? So one that's a pretty easy read, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's called The Obstacle is the Way. I think it's by uh, Ryan Holiday, I believe. Don't quote me on that name. But The Obstacle is the Way is the name of the book. And what it is is a study of stoicism. So what he does is he goes back and looks at the history of Stoicism and looks at it through the lens of like Marcus Aurelius. And then he pulls up a bunch of other people, uh, you know, famous leaders who have been Stoics over the years. 
so that's sort of the first half of the book is just an interesting look back on that, uh, that approach to leadership and that approach to life. And then the second half of the book is all about putting those beliefs into practice every day and saying, you know, I've run into an obstacle. How am I going to approach it? And, and just looking at it through a stoic's eye and, and helping people under, understand how to get around those obstacles and how to find solutions based on the obstacles they're being presented. I think maybe the reason the book resonated so much for me is if, if you want a stoic experience, go do four years at West Point, right? Um, you know, so it was, as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, a lot of this makes so much sense. Um, but it's, it's a fun read. It's pretty quick. Uh, it's like 180 pages and it's small format. Um, it, it just resonates for a lot of folks that I recommend it to as well. So before we let you go, is there anything that you'd like to say specifically to the emergency manager out there um, on leadership? Well, I think first, you know, I'd be remiss by not saying thank you. Um, you know, you, you, you folks are volunteers. You're doing the most dangerous stuff out there. You're saving lives. You know, and I mean, my daughter needed one of those folks uh, recently. She totaled her car and just, you know, thank goodness those folks were around. Um, so thank you, first and foremost. Um, you know, second, I, I'll just leave folks with that why question. I, I think we brought it up in three or four different scenarios as we talked today. Um, stop and ask why. Just that. Just pause for that one moment and say, why am I seeing this behavior? Because once you understand the why behind it, it gets a heck of a lot easier to solve and, and put in, it, it gets much clearer the leadership intervention that you should be putting in place when you understand that why. And you're gonna be a lot more effective when you do it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mike, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on.